This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and I'm really, really excited to introduce my next guest, Diana Lara. Dr. Laura is a retina specialist in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Laura, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get into the case. This is a 22-week-old gestational age baby girl with a birth weight of 800 grams who is now admitted to the NICU with respiratory distress. She has undergone surfactant injection and oxygen therapy. Retina, Dr. Laura, is consulted due to a concern for ROP. Dr. Laura, when we think about retinopathy of prematurity, what babies and what what are the criteria for the babies that we really need to make sure that we screen? Screening includes performing a dilated exam on all infants with a gestational age of less than or equal to 30 weeks or a birth weight less than or equal to 1500 grams. And screening also applies to infants who weigh between 1500 and 2000 grams or gestational age over 30 weeks if unstable clinically, and that's determined by the pediatricians and the neonatologists taking care of them. And I think those are such high yield numbers. We really need to remember that for any of our at-risk babies. But let's say that a neonate meets that screening criteria. When do we begin screening those babies? I usually screen at four weeks postnatal age or 31 weeks post-conceptional age, whatever is later. And some hospitals use slightly different guidelines, but in general, the first DFE falls between the four and six weeks of postnatal age or within 31 and 30 weeks, 33 weeks post-conceptional age, whatever is later. Okay. So just to summarize, we screen babies that are born under 30 weeks of age are less than 1,500 grams, or if they are older than 30 weeks, but still less than 2,000 grams and clinically unstable. And for those babies, the first exam is within four to six weeks or 33 weeks of post-conceptional age, whichever is sooner. It's a lot to remember, but these are our highest risk babies Um, let's say that we have one of these babies and you are screening them and you do your wonderful dilated fundus exam, which I honestly still to this day don't know how you amazing retina specialists get those good views of the fundus. But let's say that we got a perfect view of the fundus and now we want to stage ROP. 
Can you review the ROP stages for us and talk a little bit about what you would expect to see on exam and how you examine those babies? Any pointers for the trainees out there? Sure. So let's go through the stages first. So I actually consider it stage zero. It's how I document it. If there's immature retinal vasculature without any pathologic changes. Stage one is when a demarcation line is seen between the vascularized and the non-vascularized retina. Stage two is when that line develops some height and that's considered a ridge. Stage three is when there's this ridge with extra retinal fibrovascular proliferation on it. And stage four is a partial retinal detachment. It's subdivided into stage 4A, which is extrafoveal, and stage 4B, which is involving the fovea. And stage five is a total retinal detachment. And we categorize that as open or narrow anteriorly or posteriorly. For example, the co- a common configuration is open anterior, open posterior, and a less common configuration is narrow anterior, open posterior. In terms of examining these babies, it can be really difficult. A lot of these babies are incredibly sick and don't be afraid to ask for the respiratory therapist to come in, for the neonatologist to come in. Um, I often have multiple people in the exam room with me. Similarly, always mention what the exam is going to be like to the parents if they're there and offer to let them step out. The exam always looks a lot worse than it is. I always tell them it doesn't necessarily hurt. They just don't like the lights, um, which are extremely bright. I always have the nurses monitoring the uh, monitor closely. A lot of these babies can become bradycardic during the exam, um, and a lot of them need a lot of respiratory support. The height of the bed makes a big difference for me in terms of just ease at visualizing the fundus. I'm pretty short, so I've had them lower the bed as far as possible, which can be really helpful. And sometimes we actually need to take breaks during the exam if things are looking a little bit unstable. And I always defer to the neonatologist if we need to defer an exam on that day. That is very helpful. I think as a a fellow short female, it's always (laughs) really great to hear what tips that you have at bedside, especially because we're always kind of contorting our bodies, trying to get in the right position. But really just stopping and saying, I need a step stool and I need support, I think is just so important. And for all of our trainees out there, do not be afraid to ask for those things. In terms of staging, so we kind of talked about the different stages and just for our listeners, it has helped me in memorizing these stages to try to visualize them. Number one, by looking at photos of all of the stages. And that's so important not only for our testing purposes where we could potentially be shown a picture, but also for our clinical exam to know what you're correlating with. But it also helps me to use little mnemonics. So for stage one, I think of it as looking like a line. And that reminds me of the demarcation line. For two, I think tuft to tuft, they both start with a T. So I try to picture those two together. And then I kind of go from there to stage three, four, and five. But it doesn't stop there, of course, as it never does with these things. They also have zones and something called plus disease. So Dr. Laura, could you tell us a little bit more about the zones and plus disease and how those work into our staging criteria for retinopathy of prematurity? 
Sure, sure. Let me talk about the the zones and plus and and then discuss how that actually plays into the schedule at which we examine these children after the first DFE as well. So zone one is really the posterior pole. It's defined as a 60 degree circle centered around the optic nerve. Zone two is from zone one to the nasal aura anteriorly and to the mid periphery temporally, usually to the temporal equator. And then zone three is the remaining temporal peripheral retina. Plus disease is retinal vascular dilation and tortuosity of the posterior retinal vessels in at least two quadrants. And this can be accompanied by venous dilation of the iris and some vitreous haze. So when we think about when to re-examine these babies after the initial um, dilated fundus exam, I take into account both the zone and the stage. And again, nothing is, is perfect in terms of lumping it into everything has to be seen in one week, two week, three week. A lot of it depends on how aggressive the disease process appears to be. If the ROP is rapidly progressing from one dilated exam to the next. In general, any baby with what we call pre-threshold disease that we'll talk about a little bit later that we aren't treating, so type 2, I see them weekly. And anything that appears to be worsening on follow-up, I see them weekly. But a kind of a nice way to think about it is anything in zone 1, I'm going to see in one week. Anything in zone two, I'm going to see in two weeks. And things in zone three, I'll see in two to three weeks. I rarely extend my follow-ups beyond three weeks. Um, so for example, even if there's just immature vessels in zone one, so no ROP, but the vessels only extend to zone one, I'll see that baby in one week. Any ROP in zone one, I'll see in one week. And then similarly, vessels that extend to zone two, but no ROP is present, I'll see that baby in two-week follow-up. Any stage one or even stage two ROP, I'm going to see in within two weeks. Stage three ROP in zone two, I still see in one week. So that one doesn't fall into the one-week matches one zone example. Um, anything that I see in like two to three weeks is pretty much the vessels have reached almost out to zone three um, or it's stage one or two in zone three. This is so helpful. So now we've heard a lot of really useful information about the screening criteria, the staging and our follow-up intervals. And we need to get into the treatment or the studies that we have that help guide us in treatment. And the first study is the cryo-ROP study, which helped us determine when cryotherapy or retinal ablative therapy should be performed. Dr. Laura, is that correct? It's the cryo-ROP study. And can you tell us a little bit more about that and how we stage those patients and when we treat those patients? Sure. Yes. The cryo-ROP or cryo-ROP study was, the, as you mentioned, the first major trial for ROP. And it was significant because it really defined threshold disease. And they enrolled neonates with a birth weight of 1,250 grams or less. And they applied cryotherapy to the peripheral avascular retina in babies with severe or threshold ROP. And 
the they define threshold ROP as five contiguous or eight cumulative clock hours of stage three ROP in zone one or zone two with plus disease. And this criteria for treatment was later extended to laser treatment as well. Great. And then next up is the ETROP study, which stands for early treatment of ROP. So this was the one that helped us better understand the best time to treat before ROP turns into a retinal detachment. Is that correct, Dr. Laura? Can you tell us a little bit more about that study? Right, exactly. So this study, the ETROP study, established benefit of laser treatment in what they considered high-risk pre-threshold or type 1 ROP. Um, And they also enrolled babies with a similar birth weight, and they applied laser therapy to the peripheral avascular retina um, in these babies. So let's talk a little bit about um, type 1 and type 2 ROP. So type 1 is any um, is zone one ROP any stage with plus zone one stage three ROP without plus and zone two stage two or three ROP with plus the other subtype of pre-threshold disease which we consider type two that doesn't need treatment is zone one, stage one or two ROP without plus, and zone two, stage three ROP without plus. And I will say those babies that I see with the type two, the pre-threshold disease that we aren't treating, those are the ones that I'm seeing weekly. And I think in clinical practice, If they are rapidly worsening, they're developing worsening vessel tortuosity, a lot of the time I will treat them, you know, sooner rather than later. That's that's great to know. I mean, a lot of times we use these studies as a guideline to help inform clinical practice and knowing just how you treat those patients and what you do in your daily practice is extremely helpful. And then, of course, the final study, and this one's a little bit of a newer study. We were kind of talking about it before starting the recording, is the GROP study. Dr. Laura, can you tell us just a little bit, a few helpful things about this one and how you expect that this may influence practice in the future? Yeah, this is really exciting um, because currently the recommended guidelines are based on this birth weight of less than or equal to 1,500 grams and the gestational age less than or equal to 30 weeks. But there have been a lot of other proposed algorithms that are based on the amount of weight gain and systemic IGF-1 levels, as these are also associated with ROP risk. So GROP is a new criteria for examining premature infants for ROP um, that's actually found to be a little more sensitive and specific than the current guidelines. The new GROP guidelines use six criteria, any one of which leads to an exam for ROP. And those six criteria are a gestational age less than 28 weeks, a birth weight less than 1,051 grams, three different measures of slow postnatal weight gain. So one of them is um, if a weight gain between day nine, uh, b- between day 10 and day 19 after birth is less than 120 grams. 
The second is a weight gain between day 20 and 29 after birth being less than 180 grams. And the third is a weight gain between day 30 and 39 after birth that's less than 170 grams. And the last of the six criteria is the presence of hydrocephalus. So these weight gain measurements um, help to capture infants that are have an initial birth weight that's higher and are of older gestational age who may still develop type 1 ROP. It's so fascinating to me how even between when I graduated medical school and today, the studies are just rapidly progressing and increasing and how we practice medicine changes so fast. So it's always really exciting. I mean, needless to say, we're in the coolest field, but it really is just so cool to see these things. All right. So now we know the screening criteria. We know the examination findings. We know the studies. How do we treat these babies? Sure. So just to, again, summarize a little bit, because I know it's a lot of information. So we currently are screening infants with birth weights less than or equal to 1,500 grams. And um, gestational age less than or equal to 30 weeks. We're beginning screening at about four weeks chronological age or 31 weeks postmenstrual age, whichever is later. And follow-up depends on the stage, the zone, and the extent of ROP. Extent meaning the number of clock hours. If type 1 pre-threshold or threshold disease is reached, then treatment options really include laser and anti-VEGF therapy. Laser has become preferable to cryo. It's associated with less treatment-related morbidity. And in my opinion, cryo is rarely used now unless laser is unavailable. And just one thing to note about laser treatment and injections, Babies really should be monitored, especially during laser treatment. There's a risk of cardiopulmonary arrest. So a lot of the time it's done under anesthesia in an operating room or in the NICU with a team there that um, is monitoring the baby. Um, just a little bit about the anti-VEGF therapies. So another trial to mention is called BEATROP. So that's bevacizumab eliminates the angiogenic threat of ROP. And that was a multi-center trial to assess intravitreal avastin for zone one or posterior zone two, stage three ROP with plus. And um, anti-VEGF injections, I think, have really changed the game for ROP treatment. Um, they found that normal peripheral vascularization continues after treatment with Avastin or other anti-VEGFs as opposed to laser, which permanently destroys the peripheral retina. Um, one thing to note, though, is uh, in the trials, recurrences can occur later with Avastin than with something like laser. So monitoring these infants long term is super important. Um, the other anti-VEGF agents and just a couple of trials in case they, they show up on board exams, um, I personally use Avastin. Um, that's what my hospital has. But um, the Rainbow trial tested um, Lucentis. And the Firefly and Butterfly trials um, examined the use of Aflibercept, ILEA, which has actually just been approved uh, for ROP treatment. If uh, we reach stage four ROP, then surgery becomes really the only option. And 
in general, lens sparing vitrectomy is preferred. Um, scleral buckling can be helpful. Um, it is very difficult in very small eyes and the eye is growing and the buckle will need to be ultimately removed depending on the age of the patient. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, in general, in stage five ROP, what we're trying to do with surgery is dissect off some of these preretinal fibrotic membranes um, with the vitrectomy. And if a break is made, usually the prognosis becomes very, very poor. Uh, in general, in stage four or five eyes, only about a quarter of them remain attached at five years. Yeah, it is very sad to hear about the severity of those stage four and stage five babies. But hopefully, as we continue to advance our knowledge, like we were just talking about, we'll be able to give them even better treatment options. Dr. Laura, thank you so much for this very, very helpful review. I feel like I will have to listen to this three or four times to drill those numbers into my head. And before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? So I actually, since starting medical school, my answer to this question is always Elizabeth Blackwell, who is the first woman to earn a medical degree in the United States. I just think her story is, I mean, she's super inspiring. Her story is really cool. She got rejected from every medical school except one. It was Geneva Medical College. This was in like the mid 1800s. Um, the school doesn't exist anymore. I think it was absorbed by a SUNY school, but she was accepted as a joke. Actually, the male classmates voted her in as a joke and she did remarkably well, of course. And she was involved in healthcare for women. She opened the New York Infirmary for Women. She's a huge, she was a huge proponent of medical education for women. But interestingly, she also contracted a really terrible eye infection, which makes her even more interesting while she, and it relevant to this lecture, when she was treating a neonate with what sounds like gonorrheal conjunctivitis, she was flushing the eye and got splashed in her own eye and ended up losing her eye and couldn't be a surgeon. So, but an inspiring woman and would love to sit down and have dinner with her and hear her story. I honestly think this is the first response where my jaw dropped. <laughs> the, the, the listeners can't see us, but we're on video right now. And my jaw is on the floor. <laughs> I actually did not know that about her eye history. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That, I mean... It's it's incredible what you learn, but she really was a pioneer. And how lucky are we that there were women like her that were willing to pave the way so that women like us can sit where we are today. And hopefully we can do the same for the women that come after us, absolutely. maybe with a little less gonorrhea in the eye. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. She was an incredible person. And I'm I'm super grateful for all of her sacrifices and hard work. Dr. Laura, thank you again so, so much for joining us today. That was my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 